You're listening to the sermon series, The Songs of Jesus at Sojourn East. In this series, we'll see the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Today's scripture is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're in a series, wrapping up a series today actually, in which we've been looking at different Christmas songs and Christmas hymns. And then we've been looking at the biblical text that inspired them. And our our vision and our heart behind this series is really pretty simple. We want to bring clarity and definition to what Christmas is all about. Christmas is a, a time that's filled with a lot of slogans like, peace on earth, goodwill to all, joy to the world. But often those phrases, we see them everywhere this time of year, they're repeated in a vague, sentimental sort of way. And the meaning, what we're actually saying, often feels a bit blurry. A few years ago, the New York Times, there was an ad in the New York Times that said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace, which sounds wonderful. Like, I'm f- I, I love the sentiment, but, but in the end, January 1st comes, and our world's no different, doesn't feel any different at least, doesn't feel like we've advanced the cause of peace, everyone's grumpy, there's no joy in January for the most part. And so what do we mean? What is the meaning of Christmas? What is the meaning of peace on earth, joy to the world? And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at these, these songs, big songs, and the song we chose to anchor us this week is the song, O Holy Night. And I think this is probably the most beautiful song ever written. It was written about 150 years ago in France. And if you know the song, which I'm assuming most of us do, you know it's a big song. It's a big song musically. It's hard for most of us mere mortals to sing, so when we sing it at church, I usually let The pros do it, and I just listen and enjoy. But it's also a big song lyrically. It, it, the, the essence of the song, it, it invites us to imagine being in Bethlehem 2,000 years on the night that Jesus was born. And the song invites us to consider the meaning and the magnitude of his birth. It seeks to bring it into focus and bring some definition to it. And so while the song... You know, there's not one, one text, maybe Luke 2, that, that inspired the song. It was inspired by many texts. I think these two verses in Hebrews that we just read really capture very much the essence of the song. And these verses are not verses that most people would associate with Christmas, but I guarantee you they are Christmas passages. And so we're going to press into verse 17. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at this verse. And I want to give you a heads up that we're going to do a little climbing here. It's going to take a little work. Um, you got to put on your hiking boots. We're going to climb up this theological mountain. Uh, and we're going to talk about some pretty big 
important theological concepts. And then we're going to come down the mountain. We're not going to stay up there forever. We're going to come down by the end of the sermon and talk about how these verses speak to us today and this week. But I want to begin by reading this verse because it's so rich. But the meaning, it takes a little work to get to. The author writes, Therefore, he, he's talking about Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, brothers and sisters, you and I, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, a lot of the work we have to do revolves around that word propitiation. It's a word that we don't use. And I, don't, I would guess not one of you used it this week in casual conversation. And if you're like me, when I come to words that I don't know what they mean, I usually just skip over them and keep going, figuring out I'll pick up the meaning. But you can't skip over this one. And even though it feels a bit archaic and it's not a word we use, it's such an important word for understanding not just what Christmas is about, but what Christianity is about. To propitiate someone is to assuage or to appease their anger. Propitiation means the satisfaction of wrath. It's a relational word. Someone who is very angry becomes at peace because of the work of another. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus Christ, central to his work, was appeasing the wrath of his Father. Now, I know when I say that, a whole lot of stuff starts stirring in people. I know just even talking about the wrath of God, uh, we, we all have some kind of gut-level reaction to that whole idea and concept. And I guess that for many of you, <laughs> talking about God's wrath a few days before Christmas feels sort of like laughing in a funeral home or grieving at a baby shower. It feels strange or even inappropriate. But the author of Hebrews, in this verse, he shows us that the two are absolutely connected. They're inseparable, actually. For he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The author's talking about God taking on human flesh, what theologians call the incarnation. He had to be made like us to make propitiation, to satisfy, to appease the wrath of his father. You can't separate them. And it was interesting, as I was preparing this week's sermon, uh, I was doing some research on the song, Oh Holy Night, and I actually came across the original lyrics uh, translated from French, and there was a different first verse to the song that was actually changed. And I want to read you the lyrics, the original lyrics to the song. Midnight Christians is a solemn hour when God as man descended unto us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a savior. Now, what these words might lack in poetic beauty compared to the version that we sing, they more than make up for in the precious truths that they communicate. But what happened, as is often happens, they wrote the lyrics, the song became very, very popular, but there was just this sense it could become even more popular if we get rid of the word sin and wrath. Like, that's, that's not going to sell. Uh, they're not going to use that in movies. They didn't have movies back then, but you get my point. They removed it. And I think that's what a lot of us want to do, is we want to remove some of the harder parts of the Bible, things like sin 
or wrath or God's anger. We want to get rid of it to make it more palatable. And yet, what I hope to show you today is that if you're willing to press in to what the Bible says about God's wrath instead of pulling away, you'll find that what's being taught here in Hebrews is one of the most precious teachings in all of the Bible. And rather than taking away from the love of God or the meaning of Christmas, it will drastically deepen our understanding of them both. And so to talk about this, there are a couple of obstacles in the path um, that we got to get out of the way, especially when we think about and talk about God's wrath. The first is, the first reason we struggle, most of us, with the idea of God's wrath is that we misunderstand the relationship between love and anger. It's very common to hear people pit these two things against one another. I'll hear people say, I don't believe in a God of wrath, I believe in a God of love. And what they're doing is they're saying God is one or the other. But both the Bible and experience tells us that that's simply not true. Both the Bible and human experience teach us that love and anger, they're not opposites. Really, they're two sides of the same coin. And that if you really love something, you're going to be angry at anything that harms that thing that you love. If you have a family member who is caught up in an addiction that's destroying their lives and the lives of those around them, it's natural to feel angry. Maybe you're angry with them. Maybe you're angry with the addiction. That anger is not contrary. It doesn't stand in opposition to your love. That anger actually flows from your love. Someone you love gets diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> Proof of your love is the amount of anger you feel towards the disease that's eating away at their bodies. Now, in the same way, the Bible tells us that God is love. And if God really loves this world, if he really loves the people that he's made, then he has to feel anger towards all of the evil, the corruption, the darkness. He has to feel anger towards all of the things that are eating away and destroying this world. He has to feel anger when he watches the poor be trampled on. People created, he created in his image being trampled on by other people that he created in his image. He has to feel anger when he sees the bitter rivalries and the pride and the violence. If he didn't feel anger at those things, he wouldn't be loving. Rebecca Pippert, she, she put it so clearly and so simply when she said, anger is not the opposite of love, hatred is. And the final form of hatred is indifference. If God didn't care, that would prove that he doesn't love. We don't care about things, or the things we don't care about, things we don't love, we're indifferent to. So love and anger, they're not opposites. Anger is actually a fruit of love. The second obstacle that gets in our way, when, when we hear the Bible talk about God's wrath, some of you I know grew up in homes filled with a lot of anger. Maybe you grew up with a volatile mother or father, and so when you hear about the wrath of God, it can be really hard you know, to receive that because 
you grew up under a lot of anger. And what we do is we project our experiences onto God. And the, the big obstacle I think we have to get out of the way here is we have to understand that God's anger is not like our anger. God is perfectly holy. His anger is a holy anger. Our anger is almost always unholy. Not always, but almost always. Our anger is often self-serving, spiteful, malicious. Sometimes our anger is irrational, right? Anyone else? I get so mad about something, and it's like, why are you so mad? This isn't even worth being mad about, and yet you're enraged about this. It doesn't make sense, but that's the way we are. Our anger is irrational. Sometimes it's unpredictable. Man, when the, the flames of our anger are stoked, our anger can become uncontrollable and leave a wake of destruction in its path. But God, he's not like us. God is not volatile. He's not short-tempered. His anger is never irrational. The Bible tells us repeatedly that God is slow to anger. It takes a long time. His anger is never unpredictable. You can always be certain what will stir God's anger. And that's sin. But his anger, it never blows up. It's always judicious. Maybe the best single sentence definition is that God's anger is his settled and steady opposition to evil, sin, and injustice in all of their different forms. God's anger is his settled and steady opposition to evil, sin, and injustice in all of their forms. Here's how one theologian put it. He says, the wrath of God is simply the shadow side of the love of God for his wonderful creation and his amazing human creatures. Like a great artist appalled at the way his paintings have been defaced by the very people who were supposed to be looking after them, God's implacable rejection of evil is the natural outflowing of his creative love. God's anger against evil is itself the determination to put things right, to get rid of the corrupt attitudes and behaviors that have spoiled his world and his human creatures. It is because God loves the glorious world he has made and is utterly determined to put everything right, that he is utterly opposed to everything that despoils or destroys that creation, especially the human creatures who are supposed to be the linchpins of his plan for how that creation would flourish. Now we're getting to the top of the mountain here, but there's, there's a bit of a problem here. And to put it in human terms, it's not just a problem for us, and I say this with reverence, really it's kind of a problem for God as well. You see, the big question is not how a loving God could be wrathful but really, how can God's just and righteous anger towards sin be satisfied without destroying the very objects of his love? How's it happen? See, God, he can't sweep sin under the rug and just hide it. It's not just. And we as a people, when we see that happen, we become enraged and rightfully so. When, when we find out there's been a cover-up and people have gotten away with evil scot-free, these days, we boil with anger at that. So God can't just sweep it under the rug. Bygones be bygones, who cares? 
In wrath, God could wipe all evil, including all of us, from the face of the earth. He could do that. And he basically did that at the flood. But if God were to do that in a decisive and final way, (laughs) he would wipe out the very objects of his love. See, Do you see the problem? David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor in England, um, very conservative, kind of guy who would wear a three-piece suit to the beach, starch collars, that kind of guy. Uh, I just say that because he was, I was reading him, and that's what he said. He said, this is a major problem, not just for us, but for God. He says, think about it. In Genesis 1, God created the world and the universe with a word. Let there be light. Instantly. In Genesis 3, God said, there will be victory over sin, there will be healing, and I will do away with evil. And here we are thousands of years later, and his plan still being enacted. How can a righteous, just, holy God, who loves the world and the people he created, but is also very angry with sin, how can he deal with sin without destroying the people? I mean, if sin were like plants... God could just wipe out all vegetation from the earth and we'd be okay. The problem is we all have sin running through our veins. Every single one of us. And to deal with sin, to wipe out sin would be to wipe all of us out. That's the problem. And God's answer to that problem is found in a feed trough in the little sleepy town of Bethlehem. God's answer to this problem is by sending his son the second member of the Trinity who has eternally existed with the Father to take on our humanity so that he might be our representative and our substitute. That's the meaning of verse 17 when it says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. He had the eternal God, he had to take on skin and fingernails, and hair, and lungs, and kidneys. He had to become the the same as we are so that he could serve as a true representative. And the Apostle Paul expands on this thinking in Romans 8, 3, and 4. It's a hard verse, but it's a really, really important verse. We're at the very top of the mountain here. Paul says that God, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's Jesus taking on human body, and for sin, let me say it again, God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What Paul is saying is, God sent Jesus, he had flesh just like us, and God poured out his condemnation On Jesus, who had flesh and blood, so that we, even though we're sinful, we might become righteous. Martin Luther, he summarized this well when he wrote that God sent his son into the world and he heaped all of the sins of all men upon him and said to him, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and assaulter. David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross, in short, be the person of all men, the one who has committed the sins of all men. So when we think about Christmas, 
We think about Jesus being born in the manger in Bethlehem. The reason he was born was so that he might die. His death wasn't a sad twist of events. It was God the Father's plan from the beginning. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. Now, we have to be really clear here. God didn't send his son into the world in anger. It's a mistake to think God the Father is angry, but Jesus is really loving. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, doesn't say, for God was so angry with the world that he gave his only son. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What John's saying there, what Paul's saying in Romans, what the author of Hebrews is saying is by entering this world and dying on a cross, it's not that Jesus unlocked the love of God, the Father. It's not that the Father was just perpetually angry all the time and Jesus convinced him through his sacrifice to finally become loving. What the Bible teaches through and through is that God the Father plan from eternity past for Christ to come into this world and that his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, they were all done in order to display the love of God. And so the meaning of Christ's birth, it's not the wrath of God. The meaning of Christ's birth is the beauty and the love that God has shown to us. It's the greatest display in the history of the world. One more verse, 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest, was made known, was revealed. People say, how can I know God loves me? How can I know that God is a loving God? In this, the love of God was made known among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to receive the anger and the wrath that's just and righteous, but to bear that, to drink that cup so that we might get nothing but the cup of grace. This is the the truth, the beautiful truth that the song testifies. This is the thrill of hope that we sing about, a thrill of hope. What's the thrill of hope? The thrill of hope is that we don't have to suffer under the righteous wrath of God. What is it that causes a weary world to rejoice? It means we don't have to live forever in this world that is in slavery to sin and under the wrath of God. The song tells us that in Christ, a new and glorious morn breaks. What this means is that a new day emerges, a new era begins. That in Christ, even though the Father is loved from the beginning, in Christ, his love was revealed in a decisive and final way to us. And that changes everything. Everything. And so coming down the mountain, what does that mean for us today, here? And I want to give you three things. Number one, three invitations. 
Number one, it means that we must, we should, and we must receive the peace that God offers. And I want to come right down Main Street here, and I want to say, I know, I know there are a lot of Christians here, and I know there are a lot of non-Christians here. I know there are a lot of you who are here <laughs> under compulsion. Husband or wife, parent, even a child has brought you. I know there are some of you here who are unsure about where you stand, unsure about what you believe. I want every single person here to hear me say this as clearly as I can. You can have peace with God today. Today. And this peace, it's not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's a gift. It comes by grace. You can't earn it. You know, the concept of propitiation, of appeasing the wrath of a god or gods, that's not unique to Christianity. Pretty much every religion has some form of propitiation in it. What's unique about Christianity is that in every other religion, you do the work of propitiation. In every other religion, it's up to you to appease the wrath and the anger of a holy and righteous God. And so you can do that by burying your face in the dust and feeling miserable about yourself. You can do that by doing a whole bunch of good works so that this mythical scale, the good will outweigh the bad and maybe he'll accept you. You can do this through sacrifices. You sacrifice your time, your money. You sacrifice blood and then that appeases the gods, or the God. Christianity alone says that God himself put forward the sacrifice for our sins. He did the work. We don't do the work. He did it. We don't go and achieve it. It's a gift. If you think of the song, Oh Holy Night, the, the first verse, it tells us about what Christ has come to do, and then you get to the refrain, which is kind of the application. That's the call of the song. That's the, you know, and you want to be really clear, and that's when the, the tune goes high, and I go quiet because I can't sing that high and hit that note. Do you remember what the application of the song is? Fall on your knees. To fall on your knees... That's not to do any work. It's actually to do less work than you're currently doing if you're standing. It's a place of surrender where you say, yes, I've sinned. And what we mean by that sin, this gets so construed in our world. When the Bible speaks of sin, it doesn't talk about the really bad thing that some people do. Sin is every time we violate our conscience, every time we violate God's word, every time we don't live as God created us to live. And if there's a single person in this room who thinks that doesn't apply to themselves, you're kidding yourself. And so receiving the peace is saying, yes, it's falling on your knees, surrender, and then it's putting your faith in Jesus, not just believing that he lived, but trusting that his death covered your sins. It's a posture of relinquishment and trust. And that's where Christianity begins. And if you've never done that, I want to encourage you. You can have peace with God like right now. It's amazing. Right now. Here, free. And I want to encourage you to do that. We'll have pastors available up front after the service. 
If you want a prayer, you want to talk more about this. It's too important to put off. And this peace with God that we receive, it, the rest of the Christian journey is really learning how to live into and live out of the peace that Christ has secured for us. So those are my next two, my last two invitations to put before you. The first is we need to learn to live into peace with God. Because while there are some here who aren't Christians, I know many, probably most people here are. You would say, I put my trust in Christ. You would say, on some level, I have peace with God. And yet I know so many of you, you live with this sneaking suspicion that God's still out to get you. Could be because of stuff from your past or stuff from your present. Could be because of remaining sin in your life. It could be because of lies you're believing. Could be because you just did something really bad this week that you knew was bad, you did it anyway, and you think there's no way. How can I have peace when I just so flagrantly violated God's commands? The reality is that God's love for us is not contingent upon our love for him. His love doesn't fluctuate based upon our behavior. It's steady and it's secure. And he showed it to us fully and decisively in Jesus Christ. God is not waiting, eager to pounce on you. Martin Luther, quote him one more time, he said that the meaning of Christmas is that God is not against us. He said the key central message of the birth of Jesus is God's not against us. I love that, but I even love the, I mean, Paul says that, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation, God's not against us. But Paul takes it even further, and Paul's Bible, Luther's not. And Paul says, not only is God not against us, God is for us, and nothing can separate us. And so my plea for, for you who are Christians is to live into the peace you already have with God. There's a reason I spent 15 minutes telling you. I could have just told you, you have peace with God. That's what the birth meant. The reason I spent 15 minutes showing it to you in here is because I want you to know this isn't some sentimental thought coming from me. This isn't some personal opinion that I'm downloading on you. I want you to see it. It's right here in God's eternal word. And it's for us. And so living into the peace of God through Christ, I want to tell you, Christian, that it's essential you do everything you can to get that peace settled in your mind and in your heart. Get into the Word. There's some great books. Get it settled. Too many Christians live their lives. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And they actually, they struggle to make forward progress. They struggle to grow in the Christian life. And I don't say that in a judgmental way. I say that in a way that my heart breaks for you. Because you're on shifting sand all the time in your mind. You've got to get this peace secured and settled. Because it's foundational. And I mean that. We never move beyond it, but we do build upon it. The essence of the Christian life is not just believing certain things. The essence of the Christian life is that we enter into a real and living relationship with the real and living God. And if you don't know the peace that you have, you're never going to step into that relationship. And the, the clearest way we step into that relationship is through prayer. It's through talking with God. 
And I know most Christians really struggle with prayer, and I can't help but think one of the reasons we struggle with prayer is because we don't think we actually have that peace. We don't think that the Father actually wants to hear from us. Or we think about all of the things, you know, we, we dress up our prayers, and I feel this temptation. If I can put the right adjectives in the right order, and say, then maybe he'll listen. We don't think that, no, we already have peace. And we can run to him like a child runs to his father and pours their heart out. What these two verses in Hebrews tell us is not only do we have peace, not only does God care, but because Jesus was our representative, took on human flesh, he also understands. Hebrews 2.18 says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's a really encouraging verse. That's a really encouraging verse. It doesn't say when we're being tempted, he's judging us. It says when we're being tempted, he's eager and able to help because he's been there. The author of Hebrews draws us out further two chapters later where he tells us we do not have, in Christ, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The magnificent lyrics of O Holy Night that say, The King of Kings lay thus in lonely manger, in all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need. To our weakness, he's no stranger. This is what it's talking about. That Jesus Christ is our great Savior and our great sympathizer. If you only see him as your great Savior, then you say, okay, I know when I die, I have pretty good confidence that I'll go and be with him. But that'll be the extent of your life with God. It's all future-oriented. Future when you know he's your great sympathizer, you know nothing surprises him. You can take anything to him, and he can relate. So I want to encourage some of you in this room. You haven't talked to God in a long time. You can go to him right now. And he'll hear. He'll understand. He can sympathize. There's nothing you will face today, tomorrow, or ever that he cannot sympathize with and help you through. Don't forfeit one of the great gifts God has given us in this life. Live into the peace. Lastly, live out of it. Now, you've got to kind of have the first two done. I mean, not perfectly in order to step into this, but... What I mean when I say we live out of the peace of God, think about what we celebrate at Christmas is that God, he didn't pull away from us in our mess, that he pressed into the mess. He didn't leave us to deal with all of our problems on our own. He stepped in. And I think one of the things God invites us into as we grow as disciples of Jesus is we learn to be a people who don't pull away from messy situations or messy people. But like our Savior, we step into them to bring healing and peace. Especially when it gets really messy. Now, for most of us, not everyone, I'm sure there are a few perfect families here, but for the rest of us, Christmas is a messy time because Christmas means family. And most families, they're just, they're just messy for a lot of reasons. And it's tempting 
around Christmas to go into autopilot, right? Some of you, you're the most laid-back people ever, but when it comes to Christmas, you have an itinerary down to the 15-second mark. We're going to go, we're going to do this, drink the eggnog, get the presents, and then get out as soon as possible. Because it's messy, because it's hard. Living out of the peace of God, living it out, just want to ask you, what, what if this year you didn't pull away from the mess, but you pressed in? You didn't pull away from the messy people, but you pressed in. And when I say that, listen, one, every situation's different. Some situations you probably should stay away from. Most you probably should press into. And when I say press in, I'm not saying press in to fix it. Like if you've got decades of conflict in your family, you're not going to solve it over an our dinner. So you're not stepping in trying to solve everything, but what if you stepped in as a gracious, redemptive presence? What if you stepped in and said, I just want to step in and I want to be where I am with the people I'm around and I want to embody the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. My wife and I, when we go places around the holidays, and I'll just keep it vague, but when we go places, some people listen to my sermons that don't go here. Um, when we go places, that's, I say this is who I want to be here. I want to be patient. I don't want to hit eject as soon as things get difficult. But it's hard. It's really hard. And I think one of the reasons family is so hard and one of the reasons Christmas can be so messy is that for many of us, when you're with family, you just feel the cloud of judgment rolling in. Some families are very overt and others are a little more covert. But when you're with family, especially family you haven't seen in a while, you can feel them delivering verdicts. You know, and I had, I had some relatives that were very open about their verdicts. So that's what you've chosen to do with your life. That's disappointing. You know, that's who you're marrying. Interesting. But you feel it. They might not say it. This is what you're doing with your life. Sometimes it's parents or grandparents putting it on kids or grandkids. Sometimes it's kids putting it back on their parents, though. It works both ways. You roll in and everyone's delivering verdicts on each other and everyone's delivering verdicts on how they're living their lives and who they're voting for and everything else. And the verdicts can absolutely be crushing. And that's where you're like, I'm just out. I'm just out. Some of you, you go home and you're waiting to hear a verdict that probably will never be, never come. You're waiting to hear something that will probably never be said. And I know that hurts, but it doesn't have to cripple you. And the way we can actually live out the peace of Christ, it's in the same chapter in Hebrews 2. It's when we know the verdict that God has declared over us. Hebrews 2.11 says, But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And sisters. He's not ashamed. And actually, the very next verse, he says, I will boast about them. 
you're feeling weighed down, feeling like you never measure up, do you know the verdict God has given over you? He's not ashamed of you. Your family might be ashamed of you. You might be the black sheep. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. And the degree to which you know this is that it's the degree to which you can move through life and through the holidays with strength and grace. This gives you strength because you can take, again, different families work in different ways. You can take the jabs, the criticisms, the aggressive remarks or the passive-aggressive remarks. You can take them and not be utterly crushed by them because you know you got the approval of the king. As someone once said, who cares what the peasants think when you have the approval of the king? You can also, though, you can own your failures. You can own your failings. You can apologize. You can ask for forgiveness. Because you know that your place in the family of God is secure, it actually allows you to open yourself. It's tremendous grace and strength that comes. Gives you the grace knowing where you stand, that the pressure's off. Some of you, you regret things from your past or you regret how you parented your children or mistakes that you made. Grace means that the pressure's off, that your worst moments as a parent don't define you. Grace means that you can say sorry. And they might receive it or they might not, but you can say it. You know, every one of us, not every, most of us were waiting for verdicts from people, but don't overlook the fact that there are a lot of people that are waiting for, from, for verdicts from you. Like you're waiting for people to say certain things. Others are waiting for you to say something. The grace of our Lord enables us to say those things. Same with meaning. You can show grace, forgiveness, and forbearance to even the hardest of people because Christ has shown grace, forgiveness, and forbearance to us. So I just want to encourage you the next 10 days for most of us are going to be crazy. They're hard. They're complicated. But I'll tell you, they could be the most redemptive days of your year. And so don't pull away, but press in. Open hands and open hearts, receiving what God might do. It's with that in mind that we come to the Lord's table. Where we're reminded that Jesus Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed to be the propitiation for our sins, to drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs so that all that's left for us is grace. If you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to come forward and take part in this. The way we do communion here is we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ. We'll have pastors available after the service to pray up front if you would like to talk or pray with the pastor. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.